0: Chapter 3, extractivist logic in the practice of physics. How do current physics practices fit into extractivism and land? This is a bit of a big question. My main goal in this chapter is to show that there is a lot of extractivist logic in physics and not much land. If we can understand how this logic is active in the discipline, we'll be much better situated to confront it. I'll start with some background on the field's relationship with war and extraction in section 3.1. Many physics workers have developed weapons and been funded by war agencies. War is a tool used for and made possible by extraction. So there's a major connection there. Many projects in the field have produced new technologies which have provided motivation for mining and refining industries to expand. What about ethical frameworks? Well, much of how ethics is discussed in scientific frames is euro-colonial, and not relational. This is the context in which I will investigate more specific practices of physics in Section 3.2, professional writing about experiments which use a metal. I look at peer-reviewed papers discussing research that uses indium, a low-abundance metal considered crucial to modern technology-heavy society. In these papers, we will see very little reference to any of the elements of land, and instead an implied responsibility to develop new electronics. All this absence of knowledge will beg a new question, addressed in the next chapter. How is indium a part of land? Section 3.1 Background Let's begin with some background on the discipline of physics to further motivate the project of the thesis and the specific investigation later in the chapter. This is not background in the sense that physics has been done while in a background of colonialism, extraction, and war. Physics has been integrated in those things, and specific workers and projects have been very responsible in them. All of these connections are massive and specific, This section is, again, just an overview. Section 3.1.1, Physics and War. Physics has a reputation as a discipline for weapons manufacture, and it's not without reason. Not only have massive weapons projects been a core part of the practice for well over a century, but this military involvement, sometimes referred to as the military-industrial-academic complex, significantly shaped the entire discipline. Let us first take a brief look at weapons development. Of course, the major examples are atomic and hydrogen bombs. Physicists worked on the underlying theory, proposed the atomic bomb to the Eisenhower administration, and worked it to completion. During World War II, physicists also developed several kinds of radar a project with a similar expense and possibly more effect on the war effort than the bomb. See, for more information, Van Curen from 1997 and Sarkar et al. from 2016. Physicists were employed in the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars, in 1980s America. See Rice 1991 and Moscow 1987. The plan for this initiative was to build a space-based laser anti-missile defense system. It never got off the ground. Fluid dynamics and aerospace research has been immensely useful for ballistics, planes, and ships. See, for example, Bankston et al. from 2019 or Eckert from 2007. GPS and associated gravity mapping technology was crucial to be able to aim intercontinental ballistic missiles. Quantum information research is wielded for intelligence services, i.e., the computer-based war organizations. See Raymer and Monroe from 2019. There are even projects like Quantum Radar, continuing the World War II tradition of improving sensing for war. Individual physicists have, of course, resisted the overall trend of militarization. Joseph Rotblat refused work at Los Alamos during World War II, eventually writing a Hippocratic Oath for scientists. Charles Schwartz asked the American Physical Society to take a vocal stand against the Vietnam War, and was reprimanded by UC Berkeley for requiring his students to take a Hippocratic Oath, much like the one that Rotblat wrote. Schwartz and others founded Science for the People in the post-war era, an organization that protested and wrote against imperialism in science which you can read more about in Kelly Moore's Disrupting Science. Unfortunately, organized resistance from physicists appears to not have made it into the fabric of any major physics institution. The way the military shaped physics ended up being enormous. Prior to World War II, there were zero federal dollars allocated for physics research in America. The non-federal funding was about 1000000 1938 dollars. According to Paul Foreman, Post-World War II, the federal funding skyrocketed to $40 million, about $20 million in 1938. This money was awarded by the Department of Defense and the Atomic Energy Commission, which was the organization created from the Manhattan Project. Given the success of solid-state physics in radar and nuclear physics in the bomb, these fields received an enormous amount of this funding. The number of solid state PhDs increased fivefold during the 50s, compared with a two-fold increase in all physics PhDs. In the 60s, solid state became the largest subfield recognized by the American Physical Society, and has held that title ever since, C. Martin, 2019. The size, funding, and power of physics, and some fields of physics more than others, is primarily due to its utility in war. This is part of the background in which physics is conducted today. Lots of military funding and very little resistance. This background helps in seeing extractive colonial logics at work in physics. Colonialism is carried out through violence, including state-supported military violence. On a structural level, physics workers have participated in significant ways, especially in the expansion of Euro-colonial military might in the 20th and 21st centuries. Thus, we can expect that there are logics present that justify these actions, rather than logics that would have physicists first attend to responsibility in relations. Section 3.1.2 Physics and Extraction Though not quite as illustrious and direct as its relationship with war, institutional physics has also had a long history with extraction. War is a tool wielded for extraction and extraction is performed to support war. So every time physics has supported war, which is, as just noted, many times, it has also supported large-scale extraction. Physics workers have created many new technologies, sometimes depending on new extractive projects. Plenty of direct field-specific examples exist as well. Some work in geophysics from Harassness, 1973, for instance, directly supports extraction. Astronomy has been employed in the violent extraction of human lives for navigation in the transatlantic slave trade. C. McClellan, 2010. I said in Section 2.1 that the wealth of settler Canada comes from colonial extraction. This is true also for the wealth that is the ability and societal intent to practice physics on a large scale. It takes substantial resources to launch a spacecraft or accelerate protons to 99.9999% the speed of light, and it takes land to build a permanent observatory, stolen in California or in Hawaii. Siemenski, 2020 or Mile 2015. The work of physicists has often been directly involved in the creation of new material technologies like the just-mentioned atom bomb, or GPS, or integrated circuits. These technologies require extracted materials. Nuclear weapons and energy increase demand for uranium dramatically, with previous mining efforts for vanadium in the Midwest often discarding uranium as waste, according to Voiles in a 2015 book. Mining, processing, and discarding radioactive materials is replete with environmental and social harm. Every other technology physicists have had a hand in has a similar story. I will continue to pick up on this thread throughout the thesis. Technology development links physics work to extraction in a major way. Section 3.1.3 Physics and Ethics This thesis is, in part, an ethical problematization of the practice of physics, so we should probably have a little background on what ethics have already been done in the field. There is a wide range of approaches, and my review here is not comprehensive. Overall, little attention is paid to ethical questions in physics. When it is, the questions are usually about weapons development, and they are usually asked using Euro-colonial ethical frameworks. Here is an overview of those systems with arguments as to why they are insufficient. Often, this Euro-colonial approach is highly individualistic. Sandra Greer, in The Scientist and Society, for instance, suggests that scientists develop their own value system in which to practice science and stick to that. She suggests that each scientist begin with valuing human life and scientific truth, and add or modify values according to what they are comfortable with as an individual. This approach is rooted in the deontological framework, where each individual does their best to follow a set of rules. What this framing misses is a foregrounding of responsibility to the relationships that people have as scientists and parts of land. Many ethical texts focus disproportionately on research misconduct, spending a small fraction of pages late in the book attending to science and society. John DeAngelo spends a majority of his 2019 book Ethics and Science discussing fabrication of data, issues with citation, and misconduct in peer review opening with a section titled, Crimes Against Science, about misrepresenting data. The assumption in this presentation is that the pursuit of science as it currently exists is overall good and justified, that its relationship with society does not need to be deeply investigated and queried. Greer proposes justice as a primary value of scientific ethics, and defines it as, quote, respect for the lives of other people in science, and respect for the truth about their contributions, end quote. Even justice, for these scientists, is limited to those people who are somehow directly involved with the process of science, rather than justice for scientists as a corollary of valuing justice for all. Though valuing human life is a primary concern in the dominant narrative of scientific ethics, human life and society tends not to not be conceptualized as part of an ecosystem. Scientists are implored to be responsible to the people who are their research subjects, but not to consider that perhaps their duty to the health of land is their first duty. DeAngelo spends one page discussing issues of quote, science and the environment, end quote, and focuses primarily on the necessity of being honest in that research. With respect to the limited resources of the planet, He offers that scientists must consume resources, quote, responsibly but not in a way that takes the resources away from others. We should and do our part to find alternative sources of raw materials and energy, end quote. It is not clear what alternative sources exist that do not take resources away from anyone else. In her book, Ethics in Engineering Practice and Research, Caroline Whitbeck approaches the environment in a more fulsome way. She explicitly states that the environment is not merely a background, but is an integrated system. This view is attributed primarily to Rachel Carson's influential 1962 book, Silent Spring, with a vague mention that it may overlap with non-Western perspectives that existed well before the 1960s. The problems she presents are those which canonically fall into environmental engineering problems, like oil spills and chemical dumping. The ethical framework presented is rich and useful, yet still misses the dependence of engineering on systems external to it, the extraction which underlies science and engineering both. Though it has been meagerly taken up in physics, much work has been done on indigenous and decolonial approaches to ethics in science. As discussed in Chapter 2, these ethical systems generally take relationships to be fundamental, rather than individually decided sets of values. They also incorporate existing systems of power and the need to respond to them. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith, for instance, presents an indigenous research agenda in her 1999 social sciences book, Decolonizing Methodologies, that would seek to orient science as one of many tools that can be used for indigenous people's survival, recovery, development, and self-determination. In order to do science in this context, a strong ethical framework must be used that is based in respect of people and planet. Many scientists themselves have worked to resist colonialism by ethically reframing their work. On the biologist-hosted blog, Decolonize All the Science, Shea Akil-McLean and co-authors explicitly recognize the colonial history of science and the need to shift research agendas, quote, to meeting the needs of colonized people and their larger struggles for self-determination, end quote. Not only this, but they position ethics as fundamentally about care through meeting others and our own's, quote, basic needs and legitimate expectations, end quote, aligning with a broader trend in STS and decolonial thought. The vast majority of these works apply to the social and biological sciences. Very valuable work has been done in astronomy by many resisting the 30-meter telescope, which I'll call the TMT. Many indigenous Hawaiians have resisted this telescope and did not want it installed on the sacred mountain Mauna Kea. For a summary of the context, see Mile, 2015. That years-long fight seeks to instill indigenous self-determination and respect of the sacred as a central necessity in astronomy and in all science. Interestingly, the stance of anti-TMT organizers was very explicitly pro-telescope. The place and its blatant colonialism was the only thing at issue. Yet the telescope is planned to be built with a 30-meter-wide mirror in an 18-story dome, as Haraway asked in her essay, Situated Knowledges, quote, With whose blood were my eyes crafted? Quote. Where does the glass for the mirror come from? Whose land does that dome come from? When do they get a say? I am writing an ethical problematization of the practice of physics at its root by contemplating science's dependency on extraction which further depends on capitalism and colonialism. Science in society is not but one consideration to make in ethics. Science on and from land is the route from which to consider ethics. Neither can only the effects of a scientific project be taken into account. We must consider where its resources come from. From this background of physics integrated in a context of war, extraction, and ethics compatible with extraction, We can now investigate some specifics of how lab work can participate in the extractivist function of disorigining. Section 3.2. Is land acknowledged in the lab? I have just given an overview of extractivist logics in the field of physics at a macro scale. Now I turn to the scale of labs. How do physicists see materials that they use in the lab? What relations with those materials, and the structures that produce them, are acknowledged? How, then, is responsibility constructed or ignored? Understanding some of the specific ways that practices in physics uphold or further extractivist practices will be useful for the goal of changing the way the field participates in extraction overall. Local, small-scale practices are an entry point for action. When I began this study, I had some indications about answers to these questions. In my experience, lab workers are unaware of the ultimate source of their materials, as can only be expected from the extent of disorigining in the world. Further, I was not familiar with labs who were interested in this question. I had never read a paper or listened to a presentation where materials sourcing was included. Based on these limited experiences, I anticipated that I would find little evidence of place, history, future, relation, autonomy, or responsibility in records of lab work. To concretely capture indications of the ways that physicists think about and interact with indium in a professional context, I perform a content analysis of nine recently published studies which make use of indium. I looked for themes in how indium is represented and used, and its presence is justified. On the whole, the writing indicated that indium was primarily associated with its universal properties, with no mention of its earthly origins. Indium is presented as if it is not emplaced or historied, and like the scientists have no responsibility to the relations that produced it. Land is not considered in these papers. I will argue that the production of writing where land is not considered actively participates in disorigining, constructing an image of indium which is consistent with extractive rather than land logics. Section 3.2.1 Method To collect the texts, I searched on the archive, an open-access repository for papers in physics, astronomy, and math, for papers that included the word indium in their abstract submitted to the site in the last year. Ninety-eight papers fit that criteria. For workability of sample size, I picked nine papers that were also published in peer-reviewed journals and made use of Indium in an experiment. The nine papers were mostly in the fields of materials and nanoscience. One also dealt with fundamental research into nuclear structure. In the texts, I looked for references to Indium, explanation of the experimental process and results, justification of the project, mention of waste, and mention of sources of materials. Overall, there is strong similarity in the way these things are discussed across the papers. Section 3.2.2, Data. Content of papers. All papers describe experiments using indium. Ovidyahu evaluates the effects of thermal treatments on thin indium oxide films by measuring their resistance. Kulesh et al. create and study indium antimonide quantum dots, a technology intended to be used in a variety of quantum communication and computing. Lay et al. improve a bit of superconducting circuit architecture intended for quantum computing with a technique called indium-bump bonding. Sahu et al. don't actually import indium into the lab. They create indium isotopes from uranium carbide and lanthanum carbide in a particle accelerator. The paper compares the measured radii of these isotopes with values calculated from their new method. Yuan et al. do another superconducting study on two-dimensional electron gases in indium arsenide wells. Mazzolini and Birwagen, use indium as a catalyst for molecular bean epitaxy to grow gallium oxide thin films for two-dimensional electron gases. Zhao et al. build thin films of indium selenide for use in flexible electronics. Karad et al. present a new fabrication tool that, quote, eliminates the need for etching, end quote, when creating superconducting circuits on a base of indium arsenide. Sourcing and Waste of nine papers, only Lin et al. notes the company that the indium was purchased from, in this case, the Indium Corporation of America. Two more papers, Ovidiahu and Zhao, make one mention each of the purity of the indium used. Note that high-purity metals are sold at different grades, 99.99% indium atoms or 99.99% or higher. This is one of the only recognized features of lab-grade indium, which distinguishes different samples from each other. In the idealized style of scientific writing, only those details which are deemed relevant for sufficiently justifying results are necessary to include. The process of acquiring indium, or whose hands it passed through to get to the lab, is not important enough to the results of the experiment. Meanwhile, the brand names of equipment like lasers, tape, oscilloscopes, and magnetic shielding were mentioned in seven papers. None of the papers discuss the amount of indium or any other material used. In experimental processes, there are wastes generated. In nanofabrication facilities, for example, many steps of fabrication involve large quantities of solvents that devices on chips must be dunked into, and the solvents then disposed of. In Karad et al., this process is described simply as, quote, the resist was removed. There is no mention of what solvent was used or where the solvent and resist were disposed of. One of the measurement processes in Yuan et al. destroys a piece of their sample device. Quote, we note that although the single turn coil is destroyed in each shot, the sample and pickup coil remain intact, End quote. Again, there is no discussion of where the destroyed coils end up. Elemental indium Every paper reviewed referred to indium or an indium compound through universal properties, a mode of viewing materials identified in a 2015 article by Oakley as the elemental conception of a substance indium is referred to by properties that are taken to be observer-independent in simple statements like, quote, indium superconducts at 3.4 Kelvin, from Lay et al., quote, indium antimonide is a promising material with a high carrier mobility, large g-factor, and strong spin-orbit interaction, in Kulesh et al., or even just by referring to, quote, the indium, in brackets, i-n, atom, in brackets, z equals 49, as Sahu et al. do, z is the number of protons in an atom. Though the number of protons in an indium atom is truly universal, as it is the defining feature of an indium atom, these other properties are only almost universal. No block of indium is made entirely of indium atoms. This doesn't make significant effects on the properties that material scientists refer to as universal, just tiny ones. It just means that all blocks of reasonably high-purity indium are very similar, but not identical, as the language used in these papers superficially suggests. Oakley emphasizes that distilling a substance to its comparative properties, for instance, Kulish et al. referring to the high carrier mobility, high in comparison to other materials, is a widespread practice. Quote, This perspective is underpinned by the cultural dominance of the scientific definition of reality, in particular, the discipline of chemistry as a way of knowing matter. End quote. Technical goodness. Every experiment is presented with some kind of justification. Eight of nine papers justify their experimental work through its potential utility for technological applications. Six are specific in which technologies they are doing research for. In one case, the technology is introduced without an explicit value judgment, like in this introduction from Yuan et al. of the application of an indium compound. Quote, Josephson junctions made out of aluminum-indium arsenide have been used for tunable superconducting qubits. End quote. The other mentions of technology, however, included descriptor words like important, promising, and crucial. Karada et al., for instance, describes their desired material property of, quote, Uniform Defect-Free Crystal Interfaces, end quote, as, quote, Crucial ingredients for realizing high-performance nanoscale devices. Lay et al. begin their paper by saying that the circuit element they are trying to develop is, quote, Important in building quantum computers. Implicit in all of these justifications is the judgment of the particular technology as a good and worthwhile use of material, economic, and human resources. Who would care about Karad's, quote, crucial ingredients for nanoscale devices, end quote, unless the nanoscale devices were also crucial? What they are crucial for is not written in these papers. The utility and desirability of the technologies is implicit. Three of the papers explicitly argue for the goodness of indium in their technologies. Not only did they study the utility of indium in a particular device, but they recommend their methods. This utility is justified almost exclusively through technical properties of the indium compound or technique, with one mention of low cost in Lin et al., For instance, Zhao et al. describes indium selenide as having, quote, record high charge carrier mobility and photoresponsibility, which can be very attractive for different applications, end quote. The results of the study conducted by Kulesh et al. are purely about technological suitability. Quote, indium antimonide quantum wells are an excellent platform to study quantum confined systems and particularly relevant in future applications in topological superconductivity, end quote. The amount and cost of indium and other materials, or the processes in people who manipulate them in these studies, are not discussed. Experimental process The process of building and testing devices is described to varying degrees in these papers. Some papers, like Karad et al., provide detailed descriptions of each major step in the process, including details of the thickness of deposited layers, brand names of tools, and concentrations of solutions. Kulesh et al. also provides substantial detail, but uses language that requires significant familiarity with fabrication processes and their devices to readily make sense of. The people who perform the experiments are, by and large, not identified or acknowledged. As is typical of science writing, the experiments are described in a passive voice, grammatically erasing the presence of the workers. As mentioned above, wastes produced during the experimental process are barely acknowledged as waste. In a similar vein, the dangers of the processes are ignored. Karad et al. describe a step early in their fabrication process as such, quote, etching the silicon oxide using buffered hydrofluoric acid, 6% in H2O at room temperature, leaves strips of oxide, end quote. Hydrofluoric acid is an incredibly corrosive substance that requires hefty PPE for proper handling. Experimentalists reading this paper know that, of course, Its danger not being mentioned, though, perhaps implies that the danger of the process is irrelevant to whether the results of the study are technologically useful. Acknowledgements. Finally, the Acknowledgements section of each paper gives us some indication of what human labor is professionally acknowledged. All nine papers acknowledged their funders. Ley et al. received funding from the U.S. Army Research Office. Yuan et al. received funding from the U.S. Army Research Office and the U.S. Air Force Office of Scientific Research. Four papers acknowledged useful discussions or comments on their manuscripts. Karad et al., Lin et al., Lee et al., Mazzolini and Birwagan, and Ovadyahu acknowledged technical facilities or assistance. A question unanswered by these manuscripts is whether any of the listed authors are lab technicians. As Barley and Becky from 1994 write, Technicians' contributions are routinely underacknowledged in academic publications and prestige. Section 3.2.3, Analysis The institutional practice of physics was already identified before as being steeped in colonial extractivist practices. The textual data above shows that this structure also exists at the level of the lab, Let's dig into how land is not represented here, how disorigining is furthered, and how the writing reproduces extractivist logics. The major elements of land are not written into these experimental articles. The places where materials come from and will go to aren't mentioned, implying their histories and futures are as irrelevant as those places. Discussing indium through its universal qualities with no mention of, say, geologically imparted impurities further elides the fact that it came from somewhere. The specifics of how lab workers handled the materials are not included either. Very few relations are discussed at all. The absence of this information presents the materials of the experiment as objects which are just as disconnected from the rest of the world as the disinterested practitioners of the science. Their particularities are stripped away. This is typical of physics writing, and science writing more generally. It is by now a long established style to speak as specifically as possible about the actions taken in the lab while using a writing style that makes it seem as though the experiment could have happened anywhere. See Ding, 2002. This is a feature of science to many. It is meant to be universal and replicable. Unless local specificities are determined to noticeably impact the results of the experiment, they are irrelevant. So the source of indium is deemed irrelevant to the writing, because the writing is only about the experiment, and its process, and its results. By not attending to the people, places, and relations that indium comes from or goes to, physicists disoriginate, continuing the work that mining companies began. They help make it appear as if the indium came from nowhere or like its origin is completely irrelevant to their work or the consequences thereof. This disorigining is the continuation of work begun by many others to remove the information and physical characteristics of extracted material which connect it to the lands that it is or once was a part of. Like all disorigining. This allows the work to be represented without the cumbersome responsibility to all these relations that Indium has. In place of information about Indium's origin or future, readers are offered information about how the technology the researchers are seeking to build is good. The writers of these papers load Indium up with value. It is good because of its utility for these technologies, which are also good. It is good also because it has no correlation with significant wastes or dangers. There are no noticeable labor issues in its production or manipulation. The attempt to dissociate from specifics of place is enmeshed with an absence of responsibility, couched in techno-positive scientific and political commitments. The only relations that the science workers are posited as being responsible to here are the ones where they are compelled to produce more technology. They work to make sure that the indium in their lab works well with their fabrication tools. They shape the way that indium atoms bond other elements of nanocircuitry. They are creating and actively advocating for widespread use of indium-based technology, inserting it further into our technologically mediated relations. This analysis attends to a particular representation of scientific practice. These articles are professional communication intended for other professional scientific audiences. The analysis thus does not attend to the specifics of each worker who interacts with each bit of indium. They may think differently about this metal versus that one. Some workers worry about working with hydrofluoric acid in the lab. Some workers worry about where all that solvent they used in their fabrication process really goes. And none of that makes it into professional scientific discourse. Section 3.3 Connecting the Lab Back to the World. We have seen in this chapter a long, tangled history of physics with tools of violence and extraction and war. The most prominent ethical systems employed in physics were seen to be generally insufficient in terms of acknowledging land or relational responsibility. We saw, finally, that specific practices of physicists reporting on their research with indium in the lab used extractivist logics and participated in disorigining indium. There was little acknowledgement of land in those reports. There is a simple call here to put land back into physics. In this colonial world, the call for land back is about returning land to the nations it was stolen from. That's a great place to start and an excellent struggle to root this work within physics in. We will still be working with the material-ecological world when the Canadian state is dissolved and the land returned, and so we should still try to connect the lab back to the world. Physicists are not uniform, and certainly not all of them approach their work in a way which continues the legacy of militarized physics, or of one which unthinkingly asks for more resources. Many of them are greatly concerned for their future on a burning planet. Many of them support indigenous sovereignty. They are all, as far as I can tell, operating in this broader context in which the cost and effect of doing science on all parts of land is not considered an important part of the science. There is an impetus then to know the details of this cost and effect. So, in this next chapter, I will tell a land story about indium. I offer this specifically to the physicists who work with indium in the lab. They are part of the land story of indium, and in particular, of the land stories of the chunks or wires or thin films of indium which pass through their laboratory. In chapter 2, I talked about how settlers tell land stories about themselves so that they are able to understand the present, and act with an orientation toward justice in the future. So, knowing a land story of indium might help scientists, who have agency in the way they buy, use, and write about indium, to do so with more responsibility in the structures which have produced it and caused harm in the process.